The Bible says that it happened this way on this day that we call Good Friday. On trumped up charges by threatened men, Jesus of Nazareth was arrested, tried, tortured, and sentenced to die. Forced to carry his own instrument of execution, Jesus was taken outside of the walls of Jerusalem. He was marched up a mount known as Golgotha, Skull Hill, and his body was laid down upon a rude wooden cross. His Roman executioners then drove iron spikes through the flesh and bones of his hands and his feet, pinning them to the wood. Raising the cross up against the sky, they slammed it down into its post hole, leaving Jesus hanging there, mocked by the world and waiting to die. Mark's gospel reports that at noon, the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until about three, the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, the Bible says, speaking in Aramaic, the language of the common people, the ancient language of the Hebrew people, Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, the Bible says, they misunderstood his words. And they said, listen, he's calling the prophet Elijah to come rescue him. Wouldn't that be a scene, they thought, if Elijah actually showed up? Let's not let him die yet, they were saying. So one Man ran, the Bible says, and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it up for Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone, they said. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. But before anything else could happen, and with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, finishing his work, completing his mission, committing his spirit into the hands of the Father. And at that precise moment, the Bible says, the great curtain of the temple That massive 60-foot-high, four-inch-thick fabric, that veil that hung down in the great temple of Jerusalem, the greatest structure in that part of the world at that time, that great veil that separated where the ordinary people lived and where the holy God was understood to dwell symbolically, this great veil was torn asunder. 
It was torn in two from top to bottom. And a passage through it from us to him was opened up in every way. And when the Roman centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry, the Bible says, and how he died, when he saw how nobly, how bravely, how with such amazing compassion and forgiveness towards his tormentors, Jesus had died, that centurion, a leader among leaders, a man among men, saluted the one he'd been brought there in order to kill and said, surely this man was the Son of God. Of all of the questions that the Son of God asks, and we have been looking at a lot of these questions in recent weeks, but of all the ones that he poses, this one phrased from the cross before he dies is the hardest one to fully understand, isn't it? It would have been easier to get, I think, if the question had been posed to Christ's enemies. If Jesus had said, Herod, Pilate, Caiaphas, why? Why have you become so self-righteous, so self-satisfied, so self-sealed that you no longer humble yourself before God? That you no longer recognize him. Why do you injure me instead of honor me? Why do you use your power and your privilege to serve yourself instead of my kingdom and these people I so love? Don't you see that every gift you have is simply grace from my hands? Don't you realize that even pinned here, I could end your lives in an instant? Yet I keep giving you time to wake up, to finally see, to finally hear, to finally change and come home. My enemies, why have you forsaken me? Christ had posed the question to the crowd gathered there that day around the cross, we might also understand his meaning. He could so easily have asked that. People of Jerusalem, why? Why are you here? Just days ago, you hailed me. You cheered me as your Messiah. Now you leer and you jeer at me. Why? Why? Are you so easily distracted and dissuaded from your hopes? Have you not had enough of spectacles? Are you not tired of bloodshed and brutality? 
You stare now at me, but have you not had your fill of naked bodies and exploited people? Don't you get sick of feasting on the flesh and the failings of the famous? Don't you weary of hurling your hatred at the latest public target? Something in you must know this is wrong. Something in you must see that your mind is being mushed by the mob around you. Something of my image is left in your soul and it longs for beauty, not this banality. It longs for hope and not this heartache. It aches for virtue and not this vice. And this is the new way I have come to show you. So why? Why? Why, O Jerusalem, have you forsaken me? Had Jesus asked the question to his disciples, the question would have been even more understandable too. Jesus had demonstrated absolute loyalty to them. There had not been a moment in which his commitment to them wavered. And they had pretended to be completely committed to him. They had felt themselves perhaps sincerely, committed to him. But the truth was they had followed Jesus for other reasons. They had followed after him for the prosperity and the prestige and the power that they thought he would give them. Jesus had tried to tell them often, don't you see, I'm offering you a kind of wealth and position and influence that is infinitely more valuable than these things the world prefers to you. But the disciples had struggled to see it. And so when the going on Monday, Thursday got really tough, they proved not so tough and simply got going. Judas, Jesus might so easily have said from the cross, why did you betray me? Peter, why did you deny me? James, why did you abandon me? Why is your faith and your following, O church, so very fickle? Jesus could ask, why? Why have you forsaken me? It is hard to look closely at the people in the story of Good Friday and not find our own faces someplace in that crowd. I come to this place every year at this time and find myself ambushed all over again by my place in that crowd. We have all been enemies of Jesus at one time or another. Whether consciously or not, we have despised the fact that his life and his teachings challenged the self-righteous, self-satisfied, self-sealed way we like to live. If we are honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we are like that Good Friday crowd also. We have often been far more addicted to enjoying the spectacles of life than being people who challenge and change the spectacle who focus on that which is noteworthy, good, and pure, and hopeful, 
We are those disciples too, though maybe not even as committed as they were. What nets or securities, family or homes have we really left behind to follow the way of Jesus? Christ could so easily ask you or ask me, why have you forsaken me? And it would be a good question. It would be a fair question. It would bore deep into the reality of who we really are, of what truly motivates us, of how profoundly we and our world still desperately need a Savior. As helpful as that question is, however, it's not the question that Jesus asked. It's not the question that spills from his lips upon that cross. What Jesus plainly asks instead is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, I think, is really a great question. It's the sort of question that most of us have asked ourselves sometime. Granted, we have never faced something quite as grueling, never seen significant suffering and hardship or the kind of terrible loneliness and confusion that Jesus knew. But we have perhaps touched it. We have perhaps felt something of it. Since even Jesus asked this question, it seems fair for us to ask it also. Are you there, God? Do you care, God? If you would turn your back on your own son in his hour of need, then why should we think that we can count on you? I know no way of adequately approaching an answer to these interests without focusing even further on the mystery of what was happening as Jesus posed that question. At this precise moment, Jesus was taking the entire condition of the world upon himself. And in the most mysterious and magnificent bailout transaction ever to be arranged, he who was brilliant eternal holiness absorbs in his flesh and in his spirit all of the depravity and the duplicity and the tragic delirium that has or ever will afflict his creation. He accepts the righteous penalty against sin that should have been ours. Jesus enters into the hellish darkness of evil's deepest, blackest hole, and he sucks all of its energy into himself, snuffing out evil's power to ever separate us from the love of God or damn our eternal entity, eternity. He takes it into himself in an instant. But there is a cost to this, a profound cost to this. 
in this transformative moment, as Jesus becomes most fully one of us, he enters into that place of despair that some of us have touched, though none so fully as Jesus. Flooded by sin and pain, he feels a break in that constant contact with the Father and the Spirit that has been his eternal identity and his glorious strength for all of time. And in an experience of cosmic loss and loneliness that human words can never fully encompass, Jesus feels the chilling darkness of life without life without love, without hope, without light, in short, without God. And it got so hellishly dark that he does what every kid who knows they've got a loving father does. He cries out, Dad, Dad, I need you. Where are you? In London's National Gallery of Art, there hangs a picture that is so dark that at first glance it does not seem to be of anything. If you stand and ponder it, however, your eyes will adjust and you will eventually begin to make out a very dim figure that you recognize as the crucified Christ. He looks lonely and he looks lost. But if you remain longer, if you do not back away, if you linger there and do not divert your gaze, your eyes will adjust further still. And you will begin to discern behind the figure of Jesus the presence of someone else. It is God the Father. It is his Abba. And his hands are stretched out. And they are holding up his son. And on his face too is a look of unimaginable grief. Do you believe? Do you truly believe that God the Father forsook His Son even for an instant. Can God abandon Himself? Do you think He turned His face? Do you think He turned His back away as some have suggested? Think again. How long has God been looking at sin? A very long time. A very long time. So long, in fact, that it moved him to do something radical to deal with it, even though it cost him unimaginable grief. As Henry Nouwen observes, it is here at the cross 
where God's absence was most loudly expressed, that God's presence was most profoundly revealed. It was ironically precisely at this place where the love of God appeared to be most missing in action, that God was in fact Father, Son, Holy Spirit most intimately and powerfully at work. So why could not Jesus see this at that moment? It was only because he had so sufficiently, completely, and adequately absorbed our sin during those hours that he became temporarily as blind as we are. He could not see the towering love that reached out for him. He could not see the amazing love that upheld him. He could not see the glorious love that had a plan for him in that instant any more than some of us can sometimes until the light of the Easter dawn finally breaks. But even in this present darkness, fellow sinners, hear the good news this night. The God of love, the God of love is here amongst us, here in the midst of the darkness. He is on the cross dying for us. He is at this table Offering himself to you. He is in this place promising. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. How long? How long? Never. 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 For I am your Lord. And I am your Savior. Come. Put your trust in me. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, humbled by the wonder of what you did upon that rugged cross, we come. Fill us up. Strengthen us for the journey to come. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.